Welcome back to Civil Action with Brian Kabatek and... Sean Kernigian. Hello, Sean. How are you today? Not bad, Brian. What do we have today, Brian? Well, today we are going to cover a very interesting topic uh, about mandatory fee arbitration in the context of um, lawyers disputing fees or clients disputing fees with lawyers and those rules and obligations. I think it's a fascinating topic, and we're very fortunate to have Lee Strauss with us, who is uh, an arbitrator. He handles these. We're going to explain a little bit about his background in just a moment. Uh, but he's going to um, really pull back the curtain for a lot of folks on how these arbitration processes work and, and what they mean. But before we do that, Sean, talk a little bit about where people can find us. You can find us online at kbklawyers.com. If they have any questions about topics we've covered, we'd be happy to talk to them or uh, refer them out to people like Lee, who are much smarter than us in terms of some issues here. It's a low um, threshold finding people. It is. Yeah. Than. So a lot of people are smarter than us, but, but we'd be helped. We'd be happy to help you if we can. Uh, and you can find us online at kbklawyers.com. We appreciate all your feedback. And actually, getting involved uh, with Lee and talking to Lee kind of came about after we covered a case a while back. I think it's episode 30 or 31 called Sony, S-O-N-I versus Simple Layers. Which Before you talk about that case, that's a good way to explain that also we do podcasts where we do analyze recent cases and decisions that have come down from the Ninth Circuit, the United States Supreme Court, which is in Washington, D.C., Sean, the California Supreme Court, which is in San Francisco, and the various um, California Court of Appeals that are scattered throughout the whole state. And this case came down from the second district court of appeal uh, for California. And it was a case that kind of clarified the timing in terms of when to seek appeal of a uh, uh, arbitration award. Right. So and before we get into that case and explain it and actually probably have Lee explain it more than the two of us, the two, us two idiots could explain it. Right. right. Is I want to give some background about Lee. We're very fortunate to have him. He's a 1996 graduate of the greatest law school in the world, Loyola Law School. Right. And uh, he also went to a great undergraduate institution, a small liberal arts school located in South Central Los Angeles called the University of Southern California. Maybe you've heard of it. And, uh, but, but to give you a little bit about a background about Lee, well, first of all, Lee, hi, how are you? Hello. Great to be here with you guys. Thank you for being with us. We appreciate it. Uh, Lee was the executive vice president of business affairs for alternative and reality group for NBC. And there he worked on projects, including the voice songland the kelly clarkson shore a show america's got talent and the annual golden globe awards all of which have one thing in common i should be on them every single one of those all those what they have in common is we would never be invited to ever be at any of them um and in addition to that um he also is an adjunct professor at loyola teaching business and legal affairs uh, I also have a second course, I think there, Lee, called um, Alternative Reality Television. And uh, I think it's terrific that you give back to the Loyola community by teaching students there. Loyola really should have one of the best entertainment um, law programs uh, in the United States. And I know you're working hard to help that make a, become a reality. But important for today is that Lee has... Um, a side passion that he's really been pursuing for the number of years, which is to act as an arbitrator. Um, and I believe even as one of the, the people supervising the state bars program on mandatory fee arbitration that we're going to talk about a lot. Uh, he also works as a, as a fee arbitrator with the Los Angeles County Bar and with the San Fernando Valley 
um, bar associations. So having said that, Lee, I think um, I've spoken too much today already. I think, thank you for the real, I always appreciate the reassurance, John. Uh, I think it would be great if you could start a little bit by talking about the Sony. It's S-O-N-I, not S-O-N-Y, Sony case, um, which we did cover. And if we made fun of you in that case, it was not deliberate and intentional. It was more It was more making light of the fact that at the end of the day, the arbitration decision was $2.50. But I think the case that went up to the California Court of Appeal and the arbitration itself is a great place for us to start talking about these mandatory fee arbitrations. Absolutely. Yes, this case uh, started in 2015 with an arbitration that I did, and I just never dreamed that it was going to make its way. Ultimately, it did go up to the Supreme Court of California, where it was appealed and they denied cert. So, um, luckily, they they didn't they didn't want to touch this issue. They they let the Second Circuit. Uh, decision hold. But the case really brought about a couple of different issues. One of the most important was what happens post-arbitration when you have a non-binding award and how long do you have in which to either let the award become binding or go trial de novo and take subsequent actions. And um, that, that case also dealt with the issue that comes at the very beginning of the process, which is when the client and or the attorney start having a dispute with each other over the fees that are uh, being charged and what should happen at that point, which is when this notice of client's right to arbitration is supposed to be sent from the attorney to the client. And this case bookended with both of these issues being um, seminal um, between um, between the parties. So how do these cases usually get started in the sense of, um, you know, I've got a, a fee dispute hypothetically with a client. How does it get started? So it typically gets started where the parties obviously are, they're the client. Most of the times what I see is the client says, I think you have over, the, the relationship is going great up until some point, And then the client either doesn't want to pay anymore um, or something happens. Typically, what I see is where the client says, I paid enough or I paid too much and I want money back or I don't want to pay you what's owed. And then that is the typical jumping off point. Uh, and at that point, once the attorney realizes that the dispute has happened, it's the attorney's obligation to send the client this notice of client's right to arbitration, which is a state bar approved form. Um, and you have to use the current version of the form. And the real kicker with the form is the Business and Professions Code, um, Section 6200 states that the attorney must, the client has 30 days from receipt of this form to take an action. And the key word there is receipt. And a lot of attorneys think that they just put it in the mail or they just email it to the client, that that proves receipt, and it doesn't. Let me and interrupt so, and ask a quick question, sure. Lee, though, about this. Is that is that my read of this is it seems to be a one-way requirement for arbitration. In other words, 
if the client feels that he or she has overpaid the lawyer and the lawyer isn't trying to collect additional fees, but the client wants fees back that they believe they've overpaid, they have no obligation to first go the route of offering arbitration. Is that correct? Yes. It, the, it, it's, it's, the way that the statute is written is it's the clients, the clients in the driver's seat of whether they want to go to arbitration or not. Um, and the attorney, the attorney, if the attorney goes and just files a, an action in superior court, they can do that. But along with filing that action, they still have to provide the notice of clients' rights to arbitration under this MFA program. They could simultaneously sue, but also so they can, they can simultaneously sue, and they but they also still have to provide the notice. And if the client decides they want to go through mandatory fee arbitration, then the client uh, makes that choice and the attorney must participate through the process. All that does with the action that's been filed in court is it just stays it. So let me ask ask you a hypothetical. If if, let's say the lawyer fails to give notice of the, the right to arbitrate. And, and I've certainly seen this happen. Um, they fail to give it. They file the lawsuit. They serve the lawsuit. And the client doesn't know any better. What's, what happens under those facts and circumstances? Well, where this can get a little tricky for the client is if they actually answer the lawsuit. So if they answer the, the complaint they, in a sense, are waiving their right to arbitration by doing that, even if they haven't received the notice. Mm. Um, so that's why it really is important that the notice be given. Once they kind of then start proceeding down the road of like they're going to just deal with the lawsuit, they kind of are, they've, they've decided the, the exit they're going to get off. Um, but that's why the notice is important because the notice provides that, you know, if you you lose your rights after you've received this notice, if you even answer the complaint. So you have to go to one of these local programs and file for mandatory fee arbitration if you want to stay any action that's happening in the court. Okay, so so the client gets the notice and the client elects to go through the mandatory fee arbitration process. What happens next? So what happens next is, you know, the parties are uh, typically, I would say 99% of these cases are filed by the client. Very rarely is the attorney filing uh, in an MFA, but it happens, but it's not the norm. The attorney has been notified that the client has filed this action. And at that point, an arbitrator is assigned and the case is then set for hearing and you go through the process of having the case heard and an award issued. All right. So in this case, Sony, um, you were the arbitrator, right? I was the arbitrator. Uh, and, um, uh, you know, as much as you feel comfortable, this, this arbitration award is now public because it became part of the record in the subsequent litigation. As much as you feel comfortable, um, let's talk a little bit about the arbitration itself. It was for... What struck me is a relatively small amount of money that the lawyer claimed uh, he or she was owed. 
Um, I think it was less than about $4,000 in some hourly billing for some patent work. Correct. It was roughly around $3,500, I believe, somewhere in there. Um, and the, like, what, what ended up happening was the very first thing that happened in that particular case was the attorney said, hey, you don't have jurisdiction over this matter because the client was served the notice of client's rights to arbitration and they did not file the action with the LA County Bars program in, in a timely manner. So therefore, you don't even have jurisdiction to hear this case. And so that became the first thing that and, I and had to And isn't it true that you, you, right, that's what I was going to ask. Isn't it true that you uh, would be able to decide whether or not you have jurisdiction over it? That's an issue yes. for you to rule on? First. So the so the rules yeah. of the the LA County Bar's uh, ACMAS rules for MFAs are that the arbitrator has the um, the right to make that ruling, and the Court of Appeals also, you know, uh, they 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 confirmed that. And so I made the ruling that again, it came upon it fell into this issue with what does receipt mean, and the ruling that I made was that they emailed the notice to an old email address that the client was using. And while email was not an appropriate form of service of the notice, the client ultimately agreed and, and, and indicated the date by which he finally went back to that old email and had receipt of it. So I ruled that notwithstanding the fact that email was an improper form of getting it to him, that he claimed he received it, and from the date that he said he received it, he had filed the mo the action within 30 days of that date. Oh. Um, so I've had this come up multiple times where attorneys just again think that service of depositing into the U.S. mail is appropriate, and they you go back to them and you say, "Well, when did the client receive it?" and they can't prove it up. And well, I they think really the first cautionary tale we get away from this is come away from this is. That if you're a lawyer and if you're um, providing the client with a right to arbitrate, you need to do it by certified or registered mail with return receipt requested or some method like Federal Express, exactly. not for them, that shows when the client actually received it. Exactly. Now, there's been a new, a new COVID-related rule that's come down that is allowing electronic mail uh, service of certain documents and but you do have to have the party's consent that they're able to receive information that way so you still just can't also, assume like, that because you have it you can just send it that way right and i also i could see right now problems or issues with that unless the client sends an email back saying exactly i got your email thank you i don't understand what this is but i got it whatever it would be some confirmation that they got the um demand to arbitrate combined with the prior agreement that that's an acceptable manner of service okay so so that was properly, the first issue that the first issue that came up in this bigger case was did i even have jurisdiction to hear the matter and i deemed that the the client had filed the arbitration um demand within the appropriate time period and we should move forward. And they they bucked up against that a couple of times, but we ended up moving forward. 
Right. So then you got into the actual arbitration itself. And from my read of the opinion, like I said before, relatively small amount of money. One of the big issues that jumped out at me, um, which I also thought was a cautionary tale, was that the lawyer uh, had the person in his or her office who was handling the case leave and a new lawyer was assigned. Now, that's not unusual that, you know, sadly, in a in, in the world where lawyers change firms on a fairly regular basis, it happens. But then they build the client for the new lawyer to learn the case. And, and that sort of jumped out at me as a cautionary tale is something that if I were a client, I wouldn't be very happy about. Yeah. How do you feel well, about that? Well, in addition to that, you know, the client calls up the law firm to speak to the lawyer that had been working with him on these patent issues. And who comes on the phone but Mr. Sony to say, hey, he's gone, he's not here anymore. So you've got like three options. You know, we can reassign to someone here. You can, uh, you know, get someone else to handle it. Or you can go and, and just pick things up with uh, your the prior lawyer that had moved to another firm. And the client decided that he wanted some time to think about what he wanted to do. So he told Mr. Sony, don't do anything, just hold. And the biggest problem I had with the whole thing was the fact that Mr. Sony or the lawyer that Mr. Long, I think, was the lawyer that had been with it, that was in the firm that had been tasked with picking, you know, picking up the the slack had just moved forward unilaterally to bill the client all these hours to get caught up to speed with everything that was going on. And they could easily have picked up the phone or emailed the client and said, hey, we have these notices of action that need some sort of response. What do you want to do? And that was the biggest issue that I had with them just unilaterally billing the client for what I deemed to be duplicative uh, work because they had already he had already paid the original attorney to understand and know all the ins and outs of the patent issues that the, the firm was dealing with. So it was duplicative work done without authorization to even do that duplicative work. So yeah. I want to I want to save some time here for what I think is the the part of this, but just to sum up, what actually happened is. You found that there were certain fees that were um, incurred, uh, and I think it totaled $380, but then there was an offset um, for the respondent bearing, meaning the, I assume, meaning the, the, the cost of the arbitration was like $242. Why don't you explain how the award ultimately came down, and then let's get on to kind of the, the, the really interesting court of appeal case that ensued or the trial court case, which then became a court of appeal case. So it just, it ended up honestly being pure math. Uh, from what I, you know, disallowed from what they had charged the client and then what the client agreed that he would, he, they stipulated that he would pay. And you can allocate the filing fees in these matters into how you believe the parties should bear the burden of having to come to, to an MFA arbitration. It was just pure math that you know, when you did the math, the, the balance ended up that the client owed, you know, the attorney $2.50. That's how we ended up with our, our you know, our $2.50 award. Um, but it's really what happened after that award that got us into the trial court and then the court of appeals ultimately. 
Right. So after an award, there's a certain period of time. And in this case, the client said he was happy to have the arbitration be binding, but the lawyer didn't want it binding. Did I get that right? Correct. So it ended up being a non-binding award. And once an award is non-binding, what I try to do as an arbitrator is I try to write an award that gives enough rationale and basis for my decision that hopefully the parties can see that a neutral person decided in the way that they did and they just, they just accept it and like everybody moves on with their lives. Um, but in this instance, it did not work that way. And the real sort of kicker was once the award is served on the parties by the program, this 30-day clock starts ticking. And unlike what we were talking about a few minutes ago with the notice um, of right of clients' rights to arbitration, when the award is served, it really means like the day it's deposited into the mail, that is day one. And where this case became um, uh, ultimately an issue was that the attorney did not file for a trial de novo and put in, in an order to set aside the award until day 33 so after the award the, was served. So just to compare, the right to arbitrate, the 30 days starts on the date of receipt from the client. Correct. But the right to de novo is 30 days from the date the award's put in the mail. Exactly. And you don't get the plus five four mailing like and you would. And, you, and that was what this case, that was what right. Sony, you know, went to the trial court and said, hey, I get five days for mailing. You need to get, you should be giving me these extra five days. And the, and the, the trial court agreed with Mr. Sony and said that the, um, the, the, um, the filing of the court action was timely and dismissed the client's um, motion to have the award confirmed. And therefore, they went to trial, which resulted in, a, uh, I think, a decision of like $2,400 in favor of the attorney. But the real, you know, issue was the, the trial court also awarded almost $80,000 in attorney's fees for having to go to trial. Right. And and so let me just stop there before we kind of have a discussion about the Court of Appeal decision. Um, I, I, I always think it's very I think lawyers have to make an educated, intelligent decision. And I don't want to publicly say that these lawyers didn't make the right decision. They made the right decision for them. But I would always consider how much is in dispute, what you're fighting over, uh, be sure that it isn't about principle, because principle oftentimes can get in the way of doing something that's smart. And um, that that sometimes we also see a typical cross-complaint. It didn't happen here, but a typical cross-complaint against a lawyer for legal malpractice when they're trying to collect their fees. So I think most people will tell you, be sure you know what you're going into and be sure you go into it with your eyes wide open. Those Those are my cautionary advice by being someone here who's practiced law longer than the two of you. And, and by the well, you've practiced law longer than most people. Uh, but <laughs> all kidding aside, by seeking your fees, you're also extending the statute of limitations for a client to come after you for legal malpractice. So, um, you know, which normally extinguishes after one year of ceasing representation uh, by trying to collect your fees, that invites a cross-complaint and, and 
So let's, let's take Lee through the the appellate decision here because then we want to spend a few minutes at the end getting to know Lee. So let's let's go to the appellate decision now, Lee. And why don't you explain what the appellate court ultimately did with it and what we've learned from that? Well, the the biggest issue that the appellate court did the appellate court ruled that there is no five days for mailing um, under this uh, this code of civil procedure. Um, section that um, that Sony was relying on and they said that not only did the the uh, the statute say 30 days from service but the LA County bar rules specifically said that there was no additional time for mailing and therefore the um, the the action was not timely filed and the award should have become a binding award. Um, you know, that was the, that was the real thing that we got out of this case. And, you know, initially this case was non-published and I wrote, or I, I, I forgot how I had to do it, but I had to file, I filed a motion with the, um, the second, uh, the second circuit and told them that I was the original arbitrator in this case and that they had decided a issue that was very seminal in this area and that I thought it was extremely important that they published this decision and they agreed with me and the decision got published that way. Um, it was published at your urging. It was published at my urging because I didn't want this to just be a non-published, uh, decision because this 30 day issue is, was a big deal. It is. Um, here's, and, my, here's my sort of last question on this. It, ultimately, at the end of the day, did the client recover attorney fees for um, having to go through this as a result of the appellate decision um, being entered? I believe that the client, yes, was awarded their cost on appeal. Which so, probably um, yeah, that's interesting. Not quite so, sure how much that's, that's in, at the end of the day going to be for him, but um, you know, he ended up being victorious at the end and, um, um, you know, that's kind of how that case wound out. I will, I'd like to mention two issues for your listeners, um, especially if you're in California of things that I see as problems that attorneys could easily fix. And they, I don't know why, but they're like, they don't, um, one is their written fee agreements. Most of them are horrible and do not comport with business and profession code, um, either section 6148 or 6149. Um, I had a case recently where we, I asked the, uh, the attorney, it's like, well, where did you, how did you put this fee agreement together? And he's like, oh, it's like some combination between looking at the American Bar Association's website and like this website. And, and it was a mess. Like, that agreement was became voidable because it was so um, it was so not in compliance with. Um, and, and Lee, I would say that that would certainly be an area where it's worth spending a few money, a few dollars, asking an ethics expert to look at your retainer agreement and make sure that that he or she blesses it for all of those reasons. So, what's the second? And, uh, and also, also another like freeway of knowing whether you have a fee agreement that comports is just to go to the state bar's website because the committee that I was on for many years, we worked tirelessly to create sample fee agreements that covered contingencies, flat fees, hourlies. Every one of the sort of possibilities is there. 
And those particular agreements, um, we believe, uh, not only follow the law and ethics, but um, will will keep you clean if you end up in a dispute with your clients. Great. The other so the we- other area is is people do not lawyers do not understand what the meaning of a true or classic retainer is, and they put into their fee agreements that the retainer is 100% non-refundable and it's theirs and they start commingling it in their various accounts. But um, a true or classic retainer only is money that is paid by a client to have the availability of an attorney if and when they need them. And any services or fees that are charged are in addition to. And attorneys all the time are not understanding that concept. And so that's another that's another area where people, attorneys get tripped up. All right. So, Lee, thank you for that. Now, at this point, just to get to know you a little bit better, Sean and I are going to ask you, this is sort of like speed dating. We're going to ask you a series of really fast questions. Uh, don't think about them. Don't give it a lot of detail. I promise you they're in good taste. Well, as long as I ask them, they're in good taste. They may not be in such good taste if Sean does. Oh, no, I'll, I'll behave. And um, just so that people get to know you. So uh, I'm going to start. I'm going to ask you the first question. What's your favorite movie? I would say Star Wars. The original. Uh, okay. Sean? Um, if you weren't doing what you're doing now, if you weren't a lawyer, what would you be doing? I would be a producer. Of like television, programming, um, but on the producing side. If you could perform on stage with any singer or band, who would it be? Forget if you have talent or not. That's irrelevant. Uh, Tina Turner. Um, who what I did you want to share my, my birthday with? So. Oh. Uh, what, what did you want to be when you were growing up, Lee? At, when I grew up, I thought I wanted to be a director like Steven Spielberg. So you've always wanted to be in the entertainment industry? Yes. Yeah. If you were a cartoon character, which cartoon character would you be? Pluto. I always like on how people ponder our questions. Like, we're asking them, do you want to be shot or do you want to die by hanging or by, by gunfire? I did, I did get think upset. about that one for a second. Um, but I do love dogs and um, I think Pluto is, uh, is that's who, when I worked at Disney, I had the opportunity to go down to the park and actually be a character and you don't get to really choose which character. It depends on your height and, you know, how big, you know, your weight and everything. And I got to be Pluto and it was probably one of the greatest days you know, of my life, being able to go into the park and be and play, play, uh, play Pluto. Lee just clarified for me something I never figured out in my life, which is why I wasn't picked to play Snow White. Based <laughs> 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 on your height and weight, yeah, yeah. yeah. it's pretty good. Um, Lee, what message do you have for uh, Loyola alumni out there? How, how could they support the school? And you know, especially given what's going on right now. Um, with the job market and things like that, what what should we be doing? Well, I think that I'm pretty sure I got an email recently where the um, the the alumni program is asking for mentors 
and um, alumni to come in and, and help either current grads or our students that are currently in the in the school um, going through the program so that you know and as an, on an ongoing basis you can provide guidance and give you know some of your expertise and I think the more people that sign up and want to do that I think it will help our grads and our upcoming grads have a better shot in the uh, in the marketplace so um, we'll make sure that the law school knows that you're if they, if you haven't told them already that you're willing to volunteer for that but let me use that also as, a, as an opportunity to as a jumping I off had point 30, I had 35 mentors because I taught a class this semester so I've got 35 students as opposed to just one or two. <laughs> Well, we appreciate you giving back to the legal community. And I will say to our listeners that that grads today, people who graduated technically on Sunday, this last Sunday, the 17th of May, um, uh, there's a very high number of them who don't have jobs. And one thing we're constantly asking loyal alumni to do and others is keep your ears open. And anything that, that might be available for these young and new lawyers who are facing one of the most difficult times in recent memory um, of graduating from law school and coming onto a job market to keep their ears open for that. Lee, thank you so much for today. You've been a, a terrific guest. You shared so much information with us, including um, what cartoon character you'd like to be and why I got qualified from being Snow White. Uh, I appreciate your time. We both appreciate your time. Sean, tell folks where they can find us again. They can find us online at kbklawyers.com. You can look up Lee Strauss on uh, Loyola's website too if you have questions for him and want to reach out to him. Uh, but yeah, we appreciate your feedback. If you have questions for us, reach out to us. And thank you, Lee, for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. I had a great time with you guys. <laughs>